This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. By joining the book club, you get all new Haymarket titles delivered to your door and a 50% discount on the entire Haymarket website, all for one low price. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Bhaskar Thankara. I'm the president of The Nation magazine and the founding editor of Jacobin. And I'm very happy today to be moderating uh, this event hosted by Haymarket Books, of course. Um, and the occasion for this event, which everyone knows, is Eric Blanc's relatively new book, I guess new out in paperback back from Haymarket called Revolutionary Social Democracy, Working Class Politics Across the Russian Empire, 1882 to 1917. It's a really impressive work. Uh, Eric did archival research in many languages, more than five, six, seven, eight languages. Um, and, um, you know, in revolutionary social democracy, Eric focused beyond um, St. Petersburg and Moscow to the whole wide range of socialist politics and organizing that happened in the Russian uh, Revolution. So the conclusion he comes to, of course, is that the Russian Revolution was a little bit less Russian than generations of scholars had had assumed. Um, so. You know, he covers events in Finland, and I think Finland figures quite prominently in his account and in its relationship to our practices um, here in the U.S., um, in Ukraine, in uh, Russian Poland, in a host of other um, other places. Um, and I think he drives home a lot of important um, points building on the work of other um, you know, scholars about uh, how we should regard the Bolsheviks and and how exceptional uh, they they are. So I really recommend checking it out. Um, and, you know, I think we should really be grateful that we have a press and Haymarket that is willing to put out books um, like this, especially in a really accessible, um, you know, format. So it's available on the Haymarket site. Uh, I know there's a summer sale. I don't know the exact price, but uh, the co- initial cover price was less than $40. So I would imagine 30, 20. There's no way to find out other than to click the link, which I'm sure is in the description and go to the Haymarket um, site. So the occasion for the discussion today, rather than just have Eric sit here and tell us about his his book and kind of a dry academic lecture, um, though I'm sure he would have found a way to make it lively, was to kind of have a debate on the relevance of the Russian uh, Revolution. And we have some really distinguished people uh, with us to um, joining us in this conversation. Uh, we have Asama Sawant, um, who, of course, was elected first in 2013 as a socialist a city councilor for uh, as a member of Socialist Alternative in uh, Seattle. And this was a really landmark 
um, event. I, I think that it's hard to overstate how weak and disorganized the socialist movement was in the U.S. And Socialist Alternative at the time was a group that ran several competitive races, not just in Seattle, but across the the, the country um, and really showed us that being a socialist uh, didn't mean we couldn't engage in electoral politics, didn't mean we couldn't win. Uh, then also, finally, winning office didn't mean that you had to go on a steady march to the right. But in fact, you could use office and use the bully pulpit that it afforded to galvanize people and to build movements and to make socialism part of the common sense of people engaged in activism in the U.S. So, um, you know, I think uh, it's obviously not just the work of one individual, but she deserves a lot of credit there. And social alternative as a, as a whole and everyone else, uh, you know, in, in Seattle does as well. And we're also joined by Brian Cloris. Um, Brian is a national organizer for socials alternative. Eric, um, I've already introduced um, as the author of um, of his book, Revolutionary Social Democracy, Out from Haymarket. But he's also an activist within the um, Democratic Socialists of America. And he's the author of another book that was published by Verso in the Jackman series, Red State Revolt. Um, so I guess to begin with on the question of the relevance of the Russian Revolution, we'll have a, an opening from Eric, and then after that, we'll pass it off to the other other side. But Eric, do you want to get us started? Sure. Uh, thanks, Bhaskar. Thanks, Sean and Brian, for participating. Uh, thanks for Haymarket and for hosting and everyone out there. Uh, it's, it's, it's nice to be here. So to dig into it, I, I want to first summarize, I think, some of the lessons that we on the panel tonight agree on. First, and then maybe most importantly, the Russian Revolution showed that capitalism isn't eternal. Uh, it showed that working people can overthrow the current system and start building a society that establishes democracy uh, in the economy and not just in politics. Second, it shows that the strategy to get to that goal is class struggle, not a strategic alliance with liberals or capitalists. Third, to overthrow capitalism, workers need their own party, and Marxists have a central role to play in making that party effective. And finally, the class struggle is international and the struggle of workers uh, in every country is deeply interlinked. So these are huge points, uh, really important. I talk about them a lot in the book, but I, I think that there are um, points that we agree on. So I'm going to focus uh, for the sake of discussion on where I think we disagree. I, mean, I could be wrong. Uh, remains to be seen. And I would summarize it as follows. To put it simply, I think those in the Leninist tradition um, including um, organizations like Socialist Alternative, tend to overgeneralize strategy from the revolu Russian Revolution uh, to context of capitalist democracies. And the fundamental flaw of Leninism, in my view, and this comes from uh, the research I did and organizing experience as well, was to assume that a form of revolution and a form of party that was appropriate to autocratic Russia uh, can more or less be transplanted to capitalist countries where civil liberties and democratic institutions are significantly more robust, even if they don't go as far as we'd like. And so more specifically, I think it's wrong to claim that the revolution illustrates the universal validity of one, a new conception of revolution as laid out in Lenin's State and Revolution, according to which the entire uh, existing state would have to be overthrown everywhere through a mass uprising uh, to set up council republics. And two, um, it supposedly showed the necessity for a new form of revolutionary party, one committed to democratic centralism and a revolutionary Leninist program. And by new here, I mean 
that this was a different form of party and revolution than the position long articulated uh, by the left of the Second International, most notably by Karl Kautsky. Um, and the founding myth of Leninism, I think I show in the book and we can talk about, it, was that supposedly the secret to success of the Bolsheviks in 1917 was that they broke from Kautsky's strategy, known at the time as revolutionary social democracy, and that supposedly all other socialists should follow uh, them in doing the same. But as I show in the book, this is just historically wrong and it's politically flawed. Unlike in Germany, where Kautsky's revolutionary theories were ignored by the party leadership, in autocratic Russia, uh, this theory was implemented not only by the Bolsheviks, but by all the other nationalities that led working people to conquer power in 1917-18, including in Finland. And this revolutionary social democratic strategy was premised on a correct understanding that class struggle and revolutions would develop qualitatively differently in autocratic and democratic contexts. And it was precisely this understanding, this distinction between politics, autocratic uh, and democratic capitalist countries that Leninists tended to drop from 1918 onwards, or at least minimize uh, excessively. According to Leninists, the Russian Revolution shows that socialists should seek to overthrow the entire existing state, even when a democratically elected parliament exists. The problem with this claim um, is that as it doesn't actually follow from what happened in the Russian Revolution. Uh, they say that the Russian Revolution proves this, but there was no democratically elected parliament in Russia to be overthrown or to exist. And precisely because of that, Soviets or councils were able to fill the vacuums. So it's hard to generalize from the Russian experience, at least beyond Finland, uh, to countries where such a democratic parliament does exist. And all the experience then during and since 1917 shows that where a democratic parliament does exist, workers will try to use it to meet their demands, including for socialist transformation. And that's the basic reason uh, why a Leninist revolution has never come close to taking place in a capitalist democracy. And we should acknowledge that and, and sort of adjust accordingly. One of the underlying flaws in Leninism then is its assumption that workers in all countries of the world will sooner or later behave as radically as workers did in Russia in 1917. And honestly, I, re I really wish that it turned out to be true. That would be fantastic if it turned out to be true. It hasn't turned out to be true. And so we should acknowledge that and orient to the working class as it is, um, not as we might wish it to be. And if we do that, it will help us avoid a tendency of Leninists and others to excessively blame like bad leadership, misleaders, which of which is often a real problem, but to excessively blame that for holding back the revolutionary instincts of the masses. There's a lot more going on for um, what it's going to take to overthrow capitalism in different contexts. The main reason capitalism hasn't been overthrown yet isn't that socialists have strayed from the correct revolutionary line. The main reason is that capitalists are very powerful and that most workers in capitalist democracies have oriented to making the state work for them rather than trying to overthrow it. Of course, it's true that if socialists win a majority through parliamentary means and begin to push for socialist transformation, capitalists will resist this with all the means at their disposal. There's no reason to expect that the capitalist minority will peacefully submit to the majority, but it doesn't follow from this that universal suffrage and parliaments are necessarily a form of capitalist rule, as Leninists claim. It just means you need to leverage the mandate legitimacy structures of winning a democratic election in order to effectively de defeat the anti-democratic capitalist minority and the undemocratic structures of the state, like the police and the army. So what I show in the book is that it's precisely, this is precisely what happened in Finland, the one part of the Russian empire which had a sustained political freedom um, tradition and universal suffrage. Their socialists won a majority in 1916. They proceeded to try to implement the program in 1917. Then when the capitalists undemocratically 
uh, resisted Finnish socialist-led workers to power in early 1918 to fulfill their mandate. And to be clear, my argument isn't that we should try to copy Kautsky today uh, or that Finland is some sort of new universal model to be replicated. Uh, I think it's more narrow. I think what Finland does show is that revolutionary social democratic strategy could guide workers to power and that the class struggle, and this is a big point, tends to develop very differently where there's political freedom and where real parliaments exist as opposed to contexts where they don't. And the fact that the U.S. today is the least democratic of the advanced capitalist countries doesn't mean a Leninist revolution is on the cards here either. It just means we need to dramatically democratize the U.S. state to make both social democratic and anti-capitalist transformation possible. Lenin's claim uh, that, quote, the democratic republic is the best possible shell for capitalism, end quote, which is often quoted by Leninists, um, severely underestimates the extent to which democratic parliaments were won by and for working people, that what democracy we have is a conquest uh, to be defended and expanded. And it undercuts uh, this, this conception of Lenin that the re democratic republic is just a shell, the best shell for capitalism. This conception undercuts our ability to make a coherent case to working people that it's always the right not the left that wants to undermine universal suffrage and democratically elected parliaments, which we've seen most recently through the rise of Trumpism and the January 6th insurrection. And to be clear, I'm really glad that Socialist Alternative um, explicitly states that they want to base socialist revolution on a majority rule of the population. I think that's great and we agree on that. But the fact is that both Lenin and Trotsky and, and other Leninists, particularly in these early years, explicitly argued against this. They explicitly argued, and I can give you dozens of citations saying that Marxists shouldn't wait to win under capitalism majority of the population for socialist um, mandate through democratic elected parliaments, that they should win a majority in Soviets, which doesn't represent the full population. And after that, they can forge and win the majority uh, after having taken power. And I think that's a conception we should reject. It's, it's not helpful, and I don't think it um, helps move in the direction we need. As I mentioned before, and I'm going to go more briefly on this last point, the second major flaw in Leninism uh, was its claim that the Russian Revolution demonstrated the universal validity of a new party model based on democratic centralism uh, and strict organizational separation from socialists who didn't adhere to Lenin's new conception of state and revolution. And to summarize a big history, the story severely exaggerates the organizational coherence and programmatic unity of the Bolsheviks. Uh, and in practice, this conception often tends to lead to sectarianism. Because Bolsheviks operated in an autocratic context in which top leaders had to live abroad and which uh, local committees were constantly get broken up by the police, the actual organizational practices of the Bolsheviks and other revolutionaries in Imperial Russia were extremely decentralized and fluid, way more than any organization since uh, Leninist organization since 1917. So the historical record just doesn't correspond at all to the image of a tight and united party that Leninists have uh, tended to try to replicate. Moreover, the secret sauce of the Bolsheviks, uh, if you want to think about it that way, and other successful Marxists in the empire, like the Latvians or the Finns or others, was that they operated as relatively loose, fluid, and organic currents within a broader multi-broad tent, big tent party. And though exile leaders tended to squabble a lot, Bolshevik leaders on the ground and cadre on the ground were always focused on building and leading that broader party as good faith partners with other currents. They weren't primarily intervening in this party just to build to their own organization. And because Leninists from 1918 through the present have tended to excessively wall themselves off organizationally from other socialist currents, and because they insist that only their particular conception of state and revolution is viable, 
their organizations have frequently devolved into um, sects, sometimes bigger, sometimes smaller. And I think then we should move away from that organizational conception and our chances at building a majoritarian socialist movement depend on acknowledging that because there's never been a successful socialist revolution in a capitalist democracy, nobody can claim to have a precise strategic model for the way forward. And I, I think we should be skeptical of claims that um, that model exists and just needs to be replicated. So studying the Russian Revolution is great, but it's so studying the history of class struggle in a lot of other places, including after World War II in countries like Sweden, where workers and democratic socialists went furthest in capitalist democracies. And so to conclude, what becomes clear, I think, um, from this history and, and rigorous like looks at other histories since is that there are no formulas for socialist success in capitalist democracies. There are just strategic dilemmas to grapple with, which look differently in different political contexts. And that's why effectively pushing the class struggle forward requires concrete analyses of concrete situations, a large degree of tactical flexibility, and an ability to mix revolutionary dedication with a dose of humility and open-endedness. And I hope that my new book will help a generation of socialists develop these critical capacities. And I'm really looking forward to the rest of the debate. Thanks. Thank you, Eric. Um, Sam, are you, you're going to head off first for the, okay, great. Go ahead. Thank you very much for inviting me to this debate. I think this, this subject is of enormous importance to the working class, and I'm glad for Blank's book to be published from that perspective, though I disagree with its main conclusions. I also think it's important that socialists be able to make their points clearly and sometimes sharply. It's not personal. Today's world situation cries out for genuine Marxist analysis and action based on the revolutionary potential of the working class, as the Bolsheviks had in carrying out the Russian Revolution, the most progressive event in the 20th century. Marxism means not dogma or eclectic dabbling, but applying an implacable scientific lens to events and drawing up strategy based on evidence and the logic of class antagonisms. Eric says that the underlying mistake by Lenin and the Bolsheviks was believing that the revolutionary approach would work in modern capitalist democracies. He chooses Kautsky's parliamentary road to socialism, requiring the election of a socialist majority to parliament. In this, Eric holds up the Finnish revolution of 1917 and 18 as a model. The most profound and fundamental errors in this analysis are missing the lessons of both the Russian and Finnish revolutions and failing to understand the capitalist state. Contrary to Eric's faith in parliament and Congress as a means for good, the brutal nature of the state under capitalism comprises all its institutions, not only the police, the courts and the prison system, but also parliaments and the U.S. Congress. Understanding this was central to Bolshevism, but it wasn't new. Marx and Engels themselves drew the same conclusions about the role of the state under capitalism through their study of the 1848-1852 revolutions and later the Paris Commune in 1871. As Lenin said in his brilliant work, State and Revolution, and as Eric has uh, quoted but uh, drawn a different conclusion, uh, as Lenin said, a democratic republic is the best possible political shell for capitalism. And this is true, even though Marxists have correctly fought for democratic rights throughout the history. As Marx and Engels explained, and as Lenin reiterated, the role of even the most democratic parliament under capitalism is to maintain class rule. The capitalists will fight tooth and nail against any attempt to use parliament to uplift the masses, and if it stops working for them, they will undermine or dissolve it. 
We cannot build socialism, which requires taking the levers of the economy into the hands of the working class without confronting the brutal resistance of the capitalists and their state. As Engels said in the final analysis, the state is violent armed bodies of men who enforce the rule of the capitalist class by whatever means necessary. This was shown tragically during the Finnish revolution. Inspired by the Russian revolution, the Finnish revolution broke out in late 1917. The capitalist class organized anti-socialist armed militias to ward off the threat of a Bolshevik Finland. The militant workers, the militant workers and socialists called the general strike that was so all-encompassing that workers were poised to take power. Eric, in my view, makes a crucial mistake in presenting the Finnish SDP, the Social Democratic Party, as a revolutionary alternative for today. In reality, the Finnish Social Democrats were deeply divided. The SDP had a big bureaucracy who lived a comfortable lifestyle with the parliamentary members enjoying especially high wages. This bureaucracy was increasingly getting close to bourgeois liberals and the overthrowing of capitalism became a remote prospect. Because of this, they made fundamental errors like calling off the general strike after four days and at its height. Despite this, the revolutionary mood among the Finnish masses was so strong that large swaths of the working class and peasants understood the need to overthrow the capitalists as opposed to having faith in a parliamentary process. As the capitalists prepared systematically for counter-revolution, the SDP moderates were forced to respond to the mood of the masses and form a kind of workers' government in the bourgeois democratic framework. But the fatal theoretical mistake of the Finnish SDP leaders, even the most well-intentioned ones, was believing that the working class needed to stop there and to look to form a coalition government with the ruling class, that workers should not fight to seize power. The SDP leaders shut down workers' councils that were set up similar to the Soviets in Russia. They mistakenly believed in a reformist approach, that their electoral victories would mean that the capitalist class would be agreeable to a peaceful road towards sharing of power and then socialism, that the state could serve two irreconcilably opposing classes. Eric's writings unfortunately gloss over the bloody counter-revolution by the Finnish capitalists and the devastating defeat for the working class, with tens of thousands of the most heroic workers being slaughtered and some 5% of the entire Finnish population locked in political concentration camps. Sadly, these conclusions came from precisely the same mistakes that are being proposed here today based on not understanding the need to smash the capitalist state through worker self-organization led by a Marxist party, and that a situation of dual power will never be tolerated by the capitalists. These are not secondary details if one is proposing the Finnish revolution as a model of the democratic road to socialism. Engels said, the working class cannot simply lay hold of the ready-made state machinery and wield it for its own purposes. The Russian Revolution was successful partially because Lenin and the Bolsheviks understood this. In contrast, the example of 1970s Chile shows the limits of electoral politics and the reformist road. A bloody coup was the consequence of failing to understand the need to smash the capitalist state and resolve dual power through a workers' revolution. I was in India in 2019 during the momentous general strike involving over 200 million workers. In some countries, the movements of 2019 went even further than in India. They saw situations of dual power, workers running the workplaces. 
None of those led to a decisive victory for workers due to the lack of mass revolutionary parties, but situations of dual power continue to occur. Eric claims that the founding quote-unquote myths of Leninism are that the Bolsheviks broke from Kautsky on the state and had a different organizational model than the rest of social democracy. These aren't myths. They are confirmed by major primary sources on these historic events and by the course of history itself. Lenin and Kautsky's differences on the state are documented in both of their central works and actions. The democratic centralism of the Bolsheviks and of socialist alternative today is based on maximum debate to find agreement. It has nothing in common with Stalinism, and it is actually the approach we use is also not alien to the workers' movement. When a majority of workers vote to go on strike, they aim to convince the workers who voted no, but everyone is expected to take united action. Socialist Alternative has led historic victories in Seattle, like the $15 minimum wage and the Amazon tax. Just yesterday, we won landmark legislation mandating Seattle police not enforce out-of-state abortion-related arrest warrants in the wake of the Roe v. Wade ruling. Each time, we have succeeded only by overcoming the unrelenting opposition of all institutions of the ruling class, by understanding our enemies in the state and in the Democratic Party, running with working class independence against the Democrats, relying on workers' organization outside City Hall, and building a unified democratic centralist organization that insists on all our elected leaders taking home only the average worker's wage. This is Bolshevik, that is Marxist politics. This is precisely why our track record of winning reforms is unfortunately unique on the socialist left today. In a time of renewed labor organizing and an assault on the oppressed by the right wing, DSA has unfortunately been stagnant. And I, you know, I'm a member of DSA. DSA has unfortunately been stagnant and even decline, has been declining in membership. We think this is due to their overfocus on electoral politics and connection to the Democratic Party. The squad's example demonstrates how utopian it is to believe that there is a parliamentary road to systemic change. Their faith in the capitalist state and Democratic Party has meant that they have refused to engage in any semblance of class struggle and fight for the programs they ran on. They are less and less a point of reference for young people in struggle. The Economist carried a recent headline from inflation to insurrection. So we, you know, we better be aware capitalist governments are building up their repressive apparatus. We live in an era of extreme capitalist disorder, inflation, recessions, food crises, war and environmental catastrophe. If human civilization is going to survive, capitalism must be overturned entirely and replaced with a socialist world. Instead of a parliamentary road to socialism, using Democratic Party ballot lines and endorsing Biden, we should build our strength from below with clear Marxist politics and a struggle to end capitalism and all exploitation and oppression. Thank you again. And yeah, I also look forward to the discussion. Great. Um, so before I bring it back to Eric, I wanted to bring in Brian to this conversation. And I guess, Brian, can you start by just, I guess, obviously, um, in Seattle and elsewhere, uh, social alternative campaigns have gained a lot of mass support around, you know, really um, important demands around the cost of living, the cost of rent, um, supporting a fight for a 15 hour minimum wage and, and whatever else. So but for you as an organizer, um, what role does particularly talking about, let's say, the Russian Revolution or the Bolsheviks play? Is it something that's useful for developing 
cadre? Is it something that you're afraid might turn off a lot of ordinary American you know, workers or workers from, from anywhere involved in these struggles um, with us, but might have like a, a warped view of the Russian Revolution or the Bolsheviks in, in, in particular? So as an organizer, how do, how do you balance that? I think uh, that working class people in struggle can understand a lot of complex ideas and often have a real thirst for history. If you're going to become a socialist, uh, you're very quickly going to be confronted with, well, what do you think about Russia? What do you think about Sweden? Uh, what do you think about these questions? So I think it's really important uh, on the ground to be versed in things and also to inform day-to-day -day activism. We don't start from the point of view of pretending that we're in Russia in 1917. We're constantly analyzing, uh, constantly analyzing events and consciousness and where they're at to try and give us a picture of what types of demands and proposals will be necessary for the movement. But again, that's informed by Bolshevism. That's informed by what Trotsky called the transitional program, which is concentrating uh, a bunch of Marxist activity over decades going back to Marx and Engels, which is proceeding from what working class people actually need. And in this time of food crisis, of inflation, of inter-imperialist war, of environmental destruction, what is need it needed is nothing short of international socialist revolution. You can proceed from that, taking into account workers' consciousness and where it's at and how to build a bridge between what people will move into action to, which today may be defending, uh, defending abortion rights, to what's necessary by building a bridge, Medicare for all. The Democratic Party has not defended us against these right-wing attacks. That's why we need a working class party of our own. We need fundamental change to end all oppression uh, uh, that's typified in this right-wing attack. And that fundamental change, I think, is socialist revolution. And the Bolsheviks, I think, give us a very good model for that. Uh, and I think there are other historical examples we could get into that are beyond uh, the events in 1917 that show the correctness of the Bolsheviks' policies towards the capitalist state and towards building, uh, uh, towards building a coherent unified Marxist organization as part of the wider workers movement and always engaging with it. Um, so Eric, I'm wondering whether I could um, stay with you for a quick question and then probably probably have another quick one after that for you. But to begin with, um, Sama talked about the uh, Finnish revolution. Uh, Finland, I think, plays a pretty big role in your book and a lot of your other work. I'm wondering if there was anything in particular you want to respond to or or more broadly, can you can you talk about what lessons you have you draw from the the Finnish example? Because it does seem like the Finns took power, the 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 you know uh, social democrats in Finland took power. Um, and then they were immediately crushed by by the capitalists. And if they pursued enough, another road, um, maybe they would have been able to hang on to, to, to state power. At least that was the common, I think, understanding of what happened in the lead up to the Finnish Civil War. Sure. So uh, I'll try to be brief. The, the, the answers to all these are sort of in detail and well sourced in the book. So you can, you, I think that like to get into that, you should check it out and see if I convince you. Uh, the really short version is, it's a strange argument to me to argue that um, the fate and ultimate defeat of the Finnish revolution precludes uh, learning the positive lessons from it. Because we should just be real, if, that, if, the, if the fate of what happens in the revolution uh, after workers seize power is the primary 
uh, criteria through which we judge the revolution, well, then we should also basically reject the Russian revolution, which extremely quickly degenerated into Stalinism. So, you know, so just on a basic, like, analytical level, it's hard um, to, if we should, we should be consistent. I think we can acknowledge that the reason uh, the Russian revolution uh, you know, the Bolsheviks degenerate very quickly into Stalinism is largely because of a terrible context. Um, this is something that Bolsheviks argue in civil war. And similarly, it's just a, it's a form of idealism to imagine that uh, a small Finnish, extremely small Finnish country, uh, even if they had the right line, were going to be able to de defeat a German army that was far more um, equipped militarily and just they outgunned the Finns. And the Finns were hoping that the Bolsheviks would give them more arms, and they weren't able to for reasons that we don't need to go into here. But so just logically, uh, you need to be able to separate the question of how workers took power in different contexts from uh, what happened. No one's been able to prove, and it's, you're not going to be able to, that the defeat was because they took a parliamentary road. And, and, and that goes actually into the specifics of uh, what that looked like. And I think actually it's useful to, it's com you can compare it to the Paris Commune. The Paris Commune was also defeated similarly. It was crushed. Nevertheless, Lenin and Marx uh, both pointed to the Paris Commune as something full of lessons. We can look to Finland similarly. And incidentally, the Paris Commune also based itself off of universal suffrage, which was quite similar. Um, and on the specifics then of what the Finns did, this idea is just factually incorrect that they were somehow like advocates of a peaceful road to socialism, that they weren't expecting capitalist uh, minoritarian violence, and that they just sort of like hewed fully to a parliamentary, a purely parliamentary strategy that's just like not close to what they believed or what they argued. So just if you look at the sources or read the book or just look what they wrote or did, this is not the case. They helped, they called the general strike. Uh, they literally led a working class insurrection in the defense of their majoritarian rule to have workers seize power. But they did that with a democratic mandate. They did that with a base on a universal suffrage mandate that they had won. And there's no way they would have been able to lead those workers to power if they had not oriented to the state that existed. And so this is the big takeaway. Again, it's, it's, not, it's not that they quashed an alternative route. Workers were not interested in mass in an alternative route towards Soviets in Finland because they had socialists leading a majority in parliament. It's, they didn't have to quash anything because workers' dynamics differ, uh, diverged because the actual context in which they operated were different. And so unless we're able to look at how working class movements actually um, orient uh, from below, we're not going to be able to have effective tactics towards uh, leading them to power. And so that, I think, is the big lesson. It's the big difference uh, that we have tonight. And I would just end with a similar question. If um, the, the burden of proof is actually on Leninists to not point just to defeats, because again, I think Soviet Union is not particularly a shining example of success, ultimately. Um, so we actually have a lot of defeats. Workers have generally been defeated. We haven't established socialist democracy. Um, but we can look to places where workers went furthest in capitalist democracies to get some clues about the patterns of class struggle. And what um, I would argue the socialist alternative comrades tonight and other Leninists would have to demonstrate is actually like that their projection of revolution has some viability in context of capitalist democracy. And that hasn't been demonstrated tonight, um, hasn't been demonstrated historically. And therefore, even if it sounds like the best possible route, and maybe it sounds the most revolutionary, it's not necessarily the most realistic or the most viable. And so I, I would, I guess my question um, to Brian and to Sama would just be like, maybe what is your explanation for the absence of um, 
you know, anything analogous to Bolshevik revolution and a capitalist democracy. And then the second is, do you think there are some differences in tactics that being and uh, strategy in a capitalist democracy imposes? Because if it's if you do, then, you know, then we can start getting into it. Um, the specifics. Thanks. So I'll let either of you take that one on and then maybe I'll, I'll, I'll come in with a, a follow up question. You OK with me taking it, Shama? Um, well, let me, yeah, let me just say a few things and, uh, Brian, you should, um, uh, come in and, um, respond also, but, uh, I, first of all, I just wanted to say that I think, uh, this debate or discussion, whatever you want to call it, will be more useful if we, you know, characterize, um, the points accurately. Uh, I, I don't think we said that we, um, we should not learn from, the revolutionary struggles, if they ultimately were defeated, we didn't say the fate of the revolution erases the lessons. Uh, we're also talking about the Finnish revolution. I think the difference between us is that you're drawing completely different lessons in, and in my view, wrong lessons from what happened with the Finnish revolution. And I think uh, part of what part of this discussion is also uh, pointing towards the need for internationalism, because Obviously, what happened with the Russian Revolution, ultimately, the, the, you know, the fate of the Russian Revolution, for that matter, ultimately also rested on whether or not socialist revolutions were going to succeed uh, in other countries, because no, it, it cannot work in one country. And that is why we are also uh, adamant about internationalism as Marxists, as Lenin and Trotsky were as well. And in fact, the defeat of the Finnish Revolution was part of what set the stage for what the white armies of the you know multiple capitalist countries were able to do in the civil war in Russia, where they actually they attempted to absolutely obliterate the workers' revolution, uh, and ultimately the Bolsheviks did defeat them, but at such a severe cost, obviously because of the you know the price that they had to pay, literally in in the blood that had to flow because of the violence directed at them from the white armies, uh, that combined with the fact that Russia was isolated at that time as a workers' government, really, you know, all of that led to ultimately, you know, to this situation where we had the degeneration of the workers' revolution in the form of Stalinism and so on and so forth. So uh, I think we do have to learn lessons from various historic events, but we have to learn the correct lessons. And the reason Marxists mentioned the Russian Revolution is one very simple reason. It's because the Russian Revolution was the only successful workers' revolution. And in fact, uh, you know, a lot of the social democratic speakers uh, of today and of decades ago, they often uh, talk about it as if, you know, sort of just, uh, uh, you know, as if the history was just on one day, like the Russian Revolution happened and then Stalinism happened. But you don't talk about what happened before then. The workers, the successful workers' revolution in Russia, was able to uh, carry out so much, uh, so much of what constitutes socialism that actually it led the Western, uh, Western capitalist countries in terms of many, many changes, you know, progressive changes to society, whether it's women's rights, LGBTQ rights, workers' rights, um, and uh, rights for ethnic uh, minorities. And in fact, the Bolsheviks had a uniquely powerful position on the national question. All of this is important. And just last thing I'll say before I hand it over to Brian is uh, Eric is being 
quite inaccurate. You know, the SPD, SDP leaders in Finland, the ones that he's extolling, they did not call the general strike. In fact, it was the most militant workers who did that. And in fact, the role that the SDP leaders played was calling off the general strike completely prematurely. And they did that precisely because they had a very wrong understanding of what role the state plays and why it had to be a, you know, a, a genuine revolution that overcomes the capitalist class. Brian, why don't you jump in if you have something to add? Yeah, real quickly on the uh, Finnish revolution, I think it's worth um, our viewers and people who read Eric's book to really look into the history of the Red Guards, um, not the way that name has been misused later. But it, it, it shows absolutely undeniably that there was a huge rift and division between the bureaucracy that led um, that SDP. It's so hard to get those those letters right, uh, and the most militant sections of the working class typified in the general strike of four days and of the Red Guards in particular. Um, so, you know, we're we're told that we only have the greatest victory uh, in the history of the workers' movement to point to. Well, I think we need to learn from defeats, too. Chile in the early 70s is one that could go be gotten into. But what was the best chance in, as you call, a modern democratic state to have a socialist revolution? I think it was France in 1968. Um, this was not one through gradualism over time with a left government. These were explosive events under a right wing government, an elected right wing government that was elected through a parliament, which is in no way anywhere near as democratic as workers councils. But there was a month of revolution, it was called a general strike bringing in millions of workers. The right wing government fled the country. They left. They gave up. The bosses were locked in their offices and the workers were playing them the international and feeding them meals under their doors. Uh, with the government fled the country, but there was no coherent organized force. And Stalinism didn't just betray the Russian Revolution. They had a mass base in communist parties in Western Europe, too. And they betrayed the uh, revolution in France in 1968. I think, you know, perhaps we want to get into Chile 1970 to 1973. But I think this shows that situations of dual power do open up in advanced capitalist countries. And I think that in today's situation, compared to the post-war boom, it's all the more likely that we're going to see situations of dual power uh, open up with the type of extreme situation we face uh, with the economy, with the environment, uh, and with exploitation and oppression in general. So, Eric, um, I just want to maybe have you briefly address this question of, of rupture. Um, so if I'm not mischaracterizing, it seems like a lot of your argument is you build, let's say, an organization or you have organized socialists that are involved in struggles. And the goal is to get to the point where you can develop something like a mass party of working class people. And from there, you seek a mandate. And if there's democratic conditions, a lot of that mandate would be in parliament, though it would be other activity to labor organizing and other things. But you expect that it's do you expect that it's likely that that mandate would be contested and that there would need to be a rupture? Is that too formulaic or do you see what you're getting at? Like, obviously, it seems like you both had had invoked rupture, right? And breaking with the the capitalist state. So I just wonder if you could define kind of what that means to you. Sure. Yeah, I think the 
the difference between our perspectives isn't as is uh, usually claimed, or maybe it was said tonight as well, that sort of one side, my side, or Kautsky or whatever, um, is underestimates what the capitalist will do and underestimates the um, the necessity for some sort of institutional break and even potentially violence if it comes to that against uh, to defend the revolution. It, this is like classic second international Marxism as far as the left goes. Everyone expected the capitalists to be anti-democratic and that the fight to expand democracy, um, both politically and economically, was going to come up against a tremendous amount of institutional and economic sabotage, essentially. And so the expectation was that winning a majority was not going to be sufficient. It wasn't going to lead to some sort of just like peaceful um, acceptance of majority majority rule, but rather that the ability to defeat the minority capitalists and whatever power they had within the state, whether it's you know army generals or uh, police, was going to depend on being able to lean on uh, those parts of the state that were democratic and that were conquests of workers and parliaments were conquests of working class. That's who the working class fought to win parliament. They won that and they looked at that as uh, an instrument potentially for their emancipation. So I think that the difference we have is not whether a rupture is likely, I think we agree on that, but whether uh, you can have an effective, I put it this way, whether you can either have an effective rupture um, if you as socialist in a context in which a parliament exists aren't actively orienting to win a majority through that. If you reject that strategy, I think history is pretty clear that you're gonna remain a relatively marginal force um, amongst the working class. And this is the problem is that when you have, when in practice, what has happened to Leninists in capitalist democracies, they tend to be marginal and they tend to hope that the working class will eventually see that their misleaders are um, misleading them and that they will come around to the correct, you know, Leninist line and party. But it's just like, we should just look the last hundred years that has not proven to be the case. So the mechanism through which you would get to rupture, I think has to look different. It has to look um, much more towards combining and looking at equally strategically uh, relevant as both electoral politics and mass struggle as these having to uh, be reciprocally based and that you have to own and orient towards the question of winning a majority and defending that against the capitalist majority. If you leave that ambiguous, which I think Leninists do leave ambiguous, um, then I think the proof is in the pudding that you will never get, even get close to getting that majority that you want. And I'll just point and I'll just say one last thing as far as examples, because I don't want to go back into the fins. If we look at today, you know, where left movements in the world are advancing the furthest, it's Latin America, where it's precisely this dynamic. It's not that workers, including where there's been mass sort of insurgencies like Chile, uh, it's not like that they've tried to uh, build workers councils and overthrow parliaments. They've tried to democratize the state and they've oftentimes moved quite far in that. And so the, I see the, the road towards some sort of social uh, socialist transformation is going to look much more like the processes we're seeing in Chile or throughout Latin America. And it is really hard and we could get defeated. There's no recipes, but the idea that Leninism is a recipe um, is kind of hard to uh, jive with its relative marginality in these processes and really through most of the last hundred years uh, in capitalist democracies. So um, maybe Sama, I think you mentioned like or invoked democratic centralism as a principle. And I'm wondering 
Do you think there was something unique in the Bolshevik under Lenin formula of democratic centralism that was different than the way that it was invoked before or used before by social democrats in the Second International or after by like the Zinoviev kind of um, like later um, era of, of, of the Soviets? Um, so in other words, like democratic centralism broadly, right, is uh, freedom of discussion, unity in action. And I'm just wondering whether you th- you think this was kind of a unique contribution of the Bolsheviks or rather that the Bolsheviks just made the right decision, if that made sense, makes sense as a, as a question. Uh, well, the Bolsheviks didn't make the right decision. <laughs> uh, you knew I was going to say that. Um, but um, no, look, uh, that is a really important question, but I also wanted to respond to some of the points that Eric made, and I feel like I'll go on too long if I respond to both things. So if you don't mind, I'll um, pivot your question to Brian uh, to come after sure. I speak. Uh, but I think uh, a lot of important uh, points came out. I mean, I, I have lots of disagreements, but a lot of important points came up that are really worthy of discussion and debate, and this will be really valuable to clarify a lot of things. I mean, one of the things that I've been thinking uh, is, you know, Eric uh, talks about rupture a lot, but never explains what is it, what how what is that rupture, and what does it mean by rupture, and how is it going to happen? And when we talk about how it's going to happen, uh, he says, and, and he quotes Kautsky in saying that, well, you know, there's no formula. But we don't claim there's any formula. And in fact, uh, I don't agree with the uh, terminology of recipe. It's not a recipe. Uh, it's um, science. And what Lenin and the Bolsheviks did was based on the scientific conclusions they themselves drew and what, what the scientific conclusions that Marx and Engels drew. So it's not about blindly following something without questioning it. And certainly we would not have been successful in our actual work, you know, in the here and now, if we didn't take strategy and tactics seriously, or if we had some sort of sledgehammerish sort of follower kind of approach, uh, we would not, we would not have won anything. So in reality, we have to uh, understand that Marxism is, uh, you know, contrary to these speculative terms that are being thrown out. And, you know, this is not the first time you know, in every era when socialist ideas become powerful and the Russian Revolution, there's a new generation looking to the Russian Revolution for inspiration. There's another generation of, uh, you know, spokespeople who will, who will um, sort of underplay or undermine the ideas of the Russian Revolution and then use words like recipe and so on. But really, it's a scientific approach. And as I said, it's uh, being obstinate about following the logic of capitalism in terms of the class antagonisms and looking at evidence dispassionately. So, you know, Eric mentioned Latin America, for example. Well, look at what's happening all over, across Latin America. Look at what happen, what's happening in Peru. Uh, and, um, you know, all of the countries across the globe, you know, if you've been following what's happening in Pakistan, in Sri Lanka, in Sudan, I mean, in country after country, including the United States, I mean, so we're talking about a broad swath of countries at various levels of industrialization, very, very extremely troubled and uh, poverty stricken neocolonial countries to the United States, the richest country. And you're seeing that across the board today, what the situation is, is not some tremendous faith in the parliamentary institutions, but it is actually quite the opposite. In fact, I'm struck by how dramatically different reality is uh, uh, compared to the way it's being portrayed here. In fact, the credibility of the democratic institutions of capitalism are in it, that's in tatters today, including the U.S. I mean, if you looked at the recent polls, it's 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 uh, just stunning. And so, 
Um, uh, you know, so we, I think it's important, and this is what, this is the clarity that Marxism brings, which is not a debate about if working people want to fight for democratic reforms, we shouldn't. Like, you know, it's, it would be stupid, and, and this is a straw man argument to say that Marxists, uh, you know, reject fighting for democratic reforms because that's not socialism, and if workers want to fight for it, we say no. No, it's absolutely not the case, and it's, it's a simplistic and, and completely devoid of reality kind of argument. What, what is different about Marxists is that we absolutely will fight tooth and nail. And in fact, we have the best track record as Marxists, I don't just mean essay, of, of winning reforms. But what we bring is the unshakable clarity that of, of not having faith in those parliamentary reforms or in democratic reforms and in understanding that we have to fight to win if working people want are willing to get organized and everything, we should do that. But while being clear that this is not going to be, uh, you know, socialism through the ballot box kind of argument. And in fact, we bring history, our historical evidence, our historical understanding to bear to understand that. And in fact, Chile is an important example of, of uh, why the parliamentary road to socialism is a dead end, and it's actually devastating and deadly dead end. You know, uh, we know Salvador Allende, who was a self-proclaimed Marxist. I mean, the party members were self-proclaimed Marxists. They were. He was elected to Chile in 1970. Um, this is an important test case for this parliamentary so road to socialism. It failed miserably, despite all the best intentions and deep heroism. And in fact, they were many of them were absolutely heroic. This was a tragic defeat that was that ushered in a brutal military dictatorship that killed tens of thousands of people and then provided testing ground for the ideas of neoliberalism. Now, that it doesn't mean rejecting what happened in Chile, but understanding why certain things happened a certain way. It's not about, uh, you know, parochialism, like, you know, lauding the Russian revolution versus everything else. No, it is about learning objective lessons from every revolutionary struggle uh, and what worked and what didn't work. And what, what happened there, Allende and his party were naive. They thought they could win over sections of the military brass. When the elected officials tried to avoid conflict and preserve parliament, the working class got organized to prepare for power and the ruling class got ready for counter-revolution, right? And in this uh, real-life example of an attempt at a parliamentary road to socialism, the elected officials, as I said, despite best intentions, held the movement back. They did not lead the movement towards that. Actually, there was a tussle of ideas among the most militant workers on, one hand, on the one hand and the big sections of the leadership. And the workers organized their workers' councils, even citywide bodies. They took factories into democratic public ownership. Uh, but what happened was the IND government, because they had illusions, and we have to be clear, it is uh, massive illusions in the parliamentary process that uh, you know that meant that they discouraged all of this, all of this militant organizing by the workers. And in some cases, stunningly, they even handed the factories back to the capitalists, factories that the workers had taken into their control. So, in other words, the the situation of dual power did come into existence because militant workers were clear that that is the road to go, not parliamentary road. It did provide an opening for working class rule. But yet again, there was no leadership akin to the Bolsheviks in Russia during 1917. And here again, I will I will take objection to uh, one of the points that Eric made in his introduction that, you know, we uh, apparently that we, we put too much blame on the lack of correct leadership. No, it's actually a proportionate uh, critique that we have that right now obstacle to building revolutionary movements is the lack of uh, correct leadership. It's not the lack of um, you know, willingness of workers to actually come forward. And what did INA do? We tried to make compromises with the forces of 
intense right-wing reaction, and then they, and they ruthlessly crushed him and the most active workers. I mean, there was a, literally a river of blood. So this negative example shows the dangers of relying on ready-made state machinery um, of elected bodies created by capitalism. And I'll just, again, reiterate a point I made earlier. Is Again, it's, Chile is also one of the important illustrations of why Marxist logic points towards internationalism uh, and for the need for an international Marxist organization that is able to bring to bear genuine solidarity and also strategy and tactics to fight against the forces of global imperialism. Because even if the, the INA government had had the Marxist clarity, which they didn't, uh, again, alone, they would not have been able to withstand the might uh, and the and the, just the brutality of U.S. imperialism. And so, without internationalism, the idea of socialism is a non-starter. So let me go back to Eric with a question from the the chat. But I, I guess there's one thing that I'm not sure we'll have time to address. But I guess I'm wondering if the if the panelists um, think they're are times when a government should go into power, even if it doesn't have the ability to carry out, um, to bring about socialism, like if there's time, because I think like I, in Nyende's example, I don't know the exact percentage, but I think that the government went into power with, you know, with the minority government with maybe 34, 35% of the, the vote, um, which I think is a little bit different because it's not a question of having a mass democratic mandate for um, socialism, even if it, it was a socialist party, but it was just having a mandate for progressive change, land reform, other economic change with, in, in either way, a divided population. Um, and obviously, you know, I guess there's there's different perspectives, but um, that seems a little bit different than the, the Finnish example or other examples where there's been kind of a, a clearer um, mandate and maybe different um social social forces but I, I do want to get to a couple questions from the from the chat um and one which i've lost which from ryan watson and the question was about similarities and i think we discussed a few uh, but also i guess the pointed part of the question is differences uh to today's situation compared with the period covered by eric's book um, and how that should affect our strategy now. Well, I think a lot of that kind of gets to the thesis of, 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 of your, your your book, Eric, but if, if you could maybe just focus on highlighting a few key differences between then and and now in, in any way, then I'll pass it to maybe you, Brian, to to um, to maybe focus on the difference, because I think you, you very compellingly described some of the similarities in, in your uh, previous remarks. Sure. Yeah, so that's a good question. I, I mean, th there's a million different things one could say. One one sort of big difference is that political democracy, um, as hollowed out as it's been over the last, my since neoliberalism, essentially, is actually much more widespread um, and much more legitimated than it was uh, in the time of the Russian Revolution, in which uh, it was extremely exceptional for countries to even have universal suffrage. Like that was a really new thing. It was very controversial. And so what you've had is a, uh, if anything, the context today is far more um, sort of pushing against the viability of a Leninist approach than it was certainly like in Germany, people, you know, like Germany, 1918 or Finland, you know, these are like parliamentary forms that are 
pretty constrained. The, the acceptance of universal suffrage is like much more widespread today. And the problem isn't with you, the problem, people aren't mad at universal suffrage and parliament. The problem is that these have been uh, devoid, been taken away their ability to govern by the structures of neoliberal capitalism. But that actually means that we need to fight to give them a real mandate to you know, change the economy and, and to meet people's demands. And that's what we're seeing in Latin America and elsewhere. So I think that the extent to which political democracy is like more normalized um, is um, is actually more widespread. That's not to say that it's uh, not contested. You can point to a lot of examples of the right, Trump, Hungary, things like that, fighting against it. But the people fighting against it, again, uh, generally are not the left, but the right. And we should um, make sure which side we're on on that. Another big difference, I think, and this is sort of underestimated, is like we live, at least in uh, advanced capitalist democracies, in welfare states. And so all of these examples that uh, Lenin have pointed to of, you know, defeated revolutions in Chile, and, you know, I'm not going to go into why I think the analysis of that is very one-sided, but, you know, we should look at also the gains that working class movements have won. Like these, this is really important. It's made a huge difference in the lives of uh, millions and billions of people. The fact that strong labor unions were able to win their rights. The fact that democracy was able to spread. That wasn't a gift from capitalism, that was brought from below. The fact that people in large countries of the world are able to go to school and have healthcare. These are all huge victories that barely existed in the time of the Russian Revolution that make, again, the Leninist uh, path far less likely to not more likely. And we should be defending those gains and we should be acknowledged that these gains were largely won, not by Leninists, but by uh, socialists and workers movements to the right of Leninism. And so I don't think that the track record is this like unmitigated um, failure that is projected. And our ability to get to a point of majority socialist transformation and rupture is going to build off of these victories, these victories, um, which have been eroded, but not completely reversed under neoliberalism, are a huge and important starting point uh, for our ability to, this time around, effectively um, win the fight for democracy in the economy and not just in the political sphere. And I think that we need to acknowledge the really dramatic changes that have happened to capitalism, both after the Second World War, and that um, have not been completely eroded by neoliberalism. So, Brian, I, the reason why I wanted you to focus on the differences is I think it's pretty clear that in practice, the type of organizing that you do um, adapts to the environment you're in. Right. Um, so I'm just wondering, um, yeah, if you could you could focus on that, the differences between then and now and maybe how it informs you know, any portion of your your um, your work. Yeah, the late 19th and early 20th century, um, just as the post-war boom, when all those uh, uh, victories were won that Eric just talked about, was a period of intense capitalist expansion and deep capitalist boom. This is how the German SPD, uh, the Finnish SDP, this is the period in which they were built. There is no stable mass base for social democratic parties that will be built today. Um, and we should defend all those gains that were won by social democratic parties uh, uh, in the past, but they've been undermined. Uh, they will be further undermined. And it's a completely different situation in that capitalism will not grant the room for these type of reforms that can build up a mass social base. So what's my example of this? It's Greece uh, after 
the last uh, big economic crisis in 2008. Syriza, a lot of the papers of the left, Jacobin included, were calling Syriza a model uh, for the rest of the left around the world to emulate. Um, and I think the the activists in Syriza, their leaders were very well-intentioned and they had a meteoric rise out of nowhere into getting... Uh, uh, into becoming the main party in Greece after the 2008 crisis on the basis of an anti-austerity program. But what did they end up implementing under pressure from international imperialism? They ended up implementing one of the worst, if not the worst, austerity programs that Greece had seen in that period. But the Greek working class fought. There were over 12 general strikes. The quality of those general strikes at different times varied. But there were over 12 uh general strikes that had taken place. Um, but even with the best of intentions, Syriza had no room to maneuver like, uh, you know, labor in Britain in uh, the 1940s, et cetera. And that's going to be the case with uh, parties, new parties today that will be tested very quickly, thrown up by events and uh, immediately have to face key questions about breaking from capitalism or delivering in a completely different direction. Now, we don't think that the that the Leninist party, a Bolshevik organization, is the only type of organization the working class needs. The working class needs trade unions. The working class uh, also in the U.S. and in many countries around the world needs a basic fighting party that won't necessarily have a fully worked out uh, Marxist program. But we think Marxists could play a very important role in that. Um, I don't think it's a myth of Leninism that the Bolsheviks had a unique form of organization as compared to social democracy in that period, in that it's evidenced by the fact that there are actually splits in social democracy when the Bolsheviks set up the Third International on a mass scale in many countries, and also by the deeply documented historical evidence of the conditions of membership in the Communist International, which was far different than uh, than the social democratic parties at the time. I think while we're striving for that sort of unity in action, we also should guard against the Stalinist caricatures that, you know, Bolshevik organizations, uh, everyone just agrees with each other. No, it's unity in action. That's how we punch above our weight, not only in Seattle, um, with the abortion rights struggles, with the struggles we've led internationally, uh, like in Ireland, for instance. And I think it's not a myth uh, that the Bolsheviks had a unique form of organization, but it's documented in the 21 conditions for membership, which are quite famous. Uh, and I think we need robust and wide debate. Anyone who's been to a contentious meeting of socialist alternative knows that absolutely happens in our organization. But then for small forces, and the whole of the left is marginal, let's be clear about it. It's not just the Leninist left, the whole of the left is marginal. How are we going to make an impact on events? We have some unity in action. We can decide as socialist alternative did over the last couple months, we're going to focus on reproductive justice and concentrate our forces at the point of attack. We can decide, for instance, when there was an attempt to recall Shama, that we're going to focus our forces on the point of attack on the electoral angle. And I hope we'll be deciding to focus our forces at the point of attack on the basis of uh, a renewed and deepened organizing in the logistics sector in Amazon in the coming months. Great. So I'm going to have um, one question, Nsama. Um I guess this this originally came from the from the uh, question from a commenter kind of that the gist of it, I don't have it in front of me, was kind of how do you build a mass um, party? 
And I guess maybe one way to elaborate on that would be, which is my own elaboration, you know, my, my apologies if it's, you know, a stretch from where the initial question started. But let's say based on your knowledge of the Russian Revolution, are we building the party now or are we building the stew in which the party was formed? Um, like the stew being, I guess, something like the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party or or maybe one, one other maybe clearer way to put it is do we build the party now and then through struggles, does it become a bigger party? And then through more struggles, does it have a mandate for change other than those rupture? Or are we building something, are we at a more preliminary stage of, of bringing, building something like a pre-party and does the, like a, a Leninist organization, um, uh, Trotskyist organization, like Social Alternative, does it, um, is it meant to be the vehicle directly or is it meant to just help create the wider working class party or vehicle that could actually help bring about socialism? Um, yeah, I mean, just to clarify to everybody who's watching this, socialist alternative uh, doesn't, I mean, as I said, you know, we, we base ourselves on ground realities and uh, scientific analysis. So we um, we have tremendous confidence in our ideas, but we don't have delusions of grandeur in, in the sense that we don't believe that we are the party for, uh, sorry, I don't, I don't remember exactly how you phrased it, Pascar, but what we call for and this is a very important question you asked because it's a very important component of how struggle can move forward and, and moving forward means breaking the logjam of the last several decades, especially in the United States, uh, which is to break from the Democratic Party. But our message, you know, our, our the, the way we present this is not saying that if you want to break from the Democratic Party, join Socialist Alternative. You should absolutely join Socialist Alternative. And the people who are watching this, if you agree with uh, Brian's and my analysis, then you should definitely join Socialist Alternative. But we don't see that as uh, mutually exclusive. We absolutely, we unabashedly build uh, and we believe in building the forces of Bolshevism of Marxism, and that is why we are not shy, we're not quiet to uh, ask people to join Socialist Alternative. But at the same time, we need a mass working class party in the United States. This is needed today. And so in terms of your um, allusion to timing, Bhaskar, I think this is urgently needed. We urgently need to break from the Democratic Party. And that means we need a mass working class party. But where is that going to come from? And it's not just going to come from because, you know, a few people say it should happen. Uh, what, what is needed is genuine organizing inside the labor movement, especially, but also in social movements. And you need forces like Socialist Alternative to be calling for a mass working class party to break from the Democratic Party and to, to be very clear about that and not to mince words. Uh, but unfortunately, we don't have those forces. I mean, there are maybe some, um, you know, minority sections in the DSA, but for the most part, unfortunately, and I say this, as I said, as a member of DSA, Brian is a member of DSA, we are dual members of SA and DSA. Uh, we don't believe that for the most part, the leadership of the DSA is pointing towards that. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons for the stagnation in this period when there's been a labor uprising or, or stagnation of DSA is that they have pointed too much towards the Democratic Party. And they, the you know, big sections of the DSA leadership have acted as left cover for the squad. So what is needed right now in terms of, you know, what 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 does socialist alternative do as a, a small democratic socialist Marxist organization? We are um, repeatedly and adamantly talking about the 
nature of the Democratic Party itself and uh, uh, explaining why the squad have not delivered. You know, so look at the tremendous difference in working class and especially young people's consciousness between today and when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was first elected. I mean, all that promise, you know, all that hope that was pinned on the squad that has come to naught. Why? Because they have used exactly this strategy of accommodating themselves to the democratic establishment. And regardless of what, you know, their good intentions to begin with, they have all but abandoned their program. And um, uh, so, you know, we, we at this moment have an obligation to point again, you know, an alternative to that. But I will, I mean, I'll end on this. And Brian, if you want to add something, uh, you should feel free. But one of the things I think that we should really emphasize is the role of rank and file members of the labor movement at this mo moment, because the labor leadership is so it's criminally tied to the democratic establishment and every step of the way they also like sections of the DSE leadership not only give cover to the democratic establishment but but often are complicit in betraying the interests of their own rank and file members and so we i mean we not only need the massive unionization drives and you know the the labor uprising that's happening among non-unionized workers which we absolutely do we need massive battles around um, workplace-related demands like the John Deere workers, you know, the UAW members, all of that is absolutely essential. But alongside that, there needs to be a genuine uh, political uprising inside the labor movement where rank-and-file members start challenging openly and start organizing left leadership against the strategy of the dead-end strategy of supporting the Democratic Party. And that pillar, the labor pillar, labor leadership pillar of the Democratic Party is one of the main reasons why they continue to maintain their stance. You know, if, if, if that can be you know, broken or, or that can be uh, ruptured, to use Eric's terminology, then that will be a major step forward. So Eric, I'll let you kind of, because um, it is, you know, so a final plug, you know, check out Eric's book, which goes in a lot of, um, you know, important uh, questions, historical and otherwise. There's also a little, I think we did an adaption from it that ran in Jacobin maybe a year ago when the hardcover edition came out. Um, Eric's done a lot of interviews, so there's, there's, um, you know, a lot you should check out. But Eric, I'll give you a, a second to wrap up, maybe explaining uh, to speak to some of Salma's points about the relationship to um, the Democratic Party and how that figures in your vision. And again, this question of a mass party and a transition to um, to socialism. Sure. So uh, again, thanks to Shaman and Brian uh, for participating. Thanks to Buscar and to Haymarket. Um, and I'll try to respond to some of the points that just got brought up and then I'll try to give some big picture conclusions just on DSA and the Democrats. Okay. The first thing I would say is I'm extremely glad that the left and DSA and Bernie ignored socialist alternatives advice for Bernie uh, to run as a third party or green in 2015. I think it's really glad, I'm really glad that that advice, which I think was sort of dogmatic, was rejected because I don't think we'd actually be in the place we are today if it hadn't been for breaking from um, like a dogmatic uh, approach towards some of these questions. And the proof is in the pudding. Uh, we saw through the Bernie campaigns that contested against the Democratic Party establishment, the possibility for using that um, to win um, millions of people to a different type of politics. And the reality is, you know, DSA, like all other organizations over the last two years, um, has had trouble growing more. 
But I think we should be honest that the difference between an organization of 100,000 members and of, uh, as far as I know, a few hundred members is significant. There's a real difference. There's a difference in scale. And I don't think that um, you're going to be able to scale up in the United States the type of politics that um, socialist alternative comrades have like nobly espoused. And I think they're playing a great role in Seattle and elsewhere. And I think we can agree on a lot of things. But there's just not much evidence um, either in the United States or in other countries, that that politics is scalable, that it can get anywhere close to having the majority we need to win socialism. So it's really easy to point to the limitations of um, other projects. It's much harder to prove the viability of your own project, right? And we haven't seen um, socialist alternative candidates elsewhere get elected. We haven't seen third party candidates um, elsewhere getting elected. And that's really unfortunate. I actually think it would be great um, if there was more of a sentiment from below right now for, um, you know, breaking with the Democratic Party. And I think where it exists, we should seize it. Unfortunately, that is not what we're seeing on the ground. Um, and that is a huge problem for us. But it's not one that is because of DSA leadership, um, you know, bending to the squad that are bending to the Democratic Party establishment. Uh, DSA has been fighting in the streets and fighting the Democratic Party establishment. Anyone who's involved in DSA or in left knows that. And so I just want to kind of like correct the record, uh, correct the, refer, uh, the record and defend DSA's honor, which has actually been fighting in the streets and against the Democratic Party establishment consistently. And without going into the further on the U.S. situation, which is pretty far afield from the topic tonight, I'll just end with a few brief thoughts. The first is, uh, I'm glad we're having these discussions. I think it means that there's a new generation of socialists looking to the past. Um, and I would basically just encourage anybody, including comrades who really disagree with me, like to actually read the book in an open-minded way, because I would just say a lot of the specific historical and political uh, points that were made um, about the Finns and the Bolsheviks that were put forward on the other side tonight, I just think are historically inaccurate and that uh, even comrades who might disagree with me, I think if they dig into the evidence more, we'll come to uh, have to acknowledge some of that. So I'll leave that for later. And the big point I think is we should be extremely excited about the uh, openings for a mass socialist movement. And we should seize that moment with fresh eyes and uh, a vision for positive democratic socialist change. And that the one of the ways of doing that is by breaking from some of the accumulated historical um, sort of straitjackets that has hurt the radical left from being able to be the alternative that we need to be against the moderate forces, whether it's liberals or sort of class collaboration as social democrats, for us to become the majoritarian current that is needed to have the rupture and democratic socialist transformation, I think we need to break from uh, dogmatic lessons of the Russian revolution and Leninism. So I'll leave it at that. Um, and uh, thank you again for everyone for watching and for participating. Yeah, and I'll, I'll jump in again just to thank everyone for participating. Um, you know, obviously Brian, but Sama especially, it's very rare to have, um, and I think we're, we're very lucky to have uh, socialist politicians who are able to play a major role in their, their local communities and in national struggles, but is, are willing to, to do these sorts of debates and discussions. And I think that, you know, bodes well for, for the future. And hopefully we'll have a, um, a group of um, uh, a larger and larger group of leaders, uh, both in our workplaces and, and social movement struggles and, and also in the elected realm who, who fall in those those footsteps. And uh, uh, Brian, again, for being generous with this time. And I hope that everyone checks out Eric's books and you know buys it direct from Haymarket to support um, their effort as a radical socialist publisher. So I guess I'll leave it there. 
Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.